0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as usual, to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares.
1: And we are so excited to talk to you today about 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show!
0: Yay!
1: Yay, indeed.
0: And this was Anthony's choice... Which I think will become clearer as the the episode proceeds, because I think that his, like, enthusiasm will just gush forth. Uh, It's not that I didn't want to or wasn't willing to talk about it, but shameful secret time. This was the first time I had seen Rocky Horror.
1: Dun dun! Oh my gosh! The <laughs> horror scholar admits I know. on air. We've got you. We've got you. The, we're gonna have. You're gonna have to turn your degree back in. I think. I know. That
0: is how it works. That is a hundred percent how if, it works. If
1: you find <laughs> out that you, a horror scholar hasn't seen a horror text that you have seen, and you know it, you get their degree. Actually, yes. So yes. On on air, I have actually just uh, so welcome,
0: Doctor Anthony Tresca. Hello, hello. <laughs> I had seen I had seen the staged production once, uh, it, uh, but it, again, it's only been in the last couple of years because it's it was living here in San Antonio. And
1: what do you mean by stage production? Did you see a shadow cast, or did you see like a production of the stage musical?
0: I saw a play. I saw a play. Oh, oh okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so I saw a play first. Um, I saw it pre-pandemic but but maybe it may have been as soon as like that october before the pandemic so it's still not been very long so i am a new babe uh to to rocky horror as opposed to you which we did the math you have seen it engaged with it participated in it more times this year than i have in my entire life is that correct
1: that that's correct uh by today and we're recording this on um October 24th, uh, so just yep. a, a little before we release it. And by this time, and I'm not inca- including, I have, uh, I'm have, i still gonna be seeing Rocky two more times this October <laughs> cycle. I've already seen it seven times this year. And that's either watched it at home or gone out and and seen it um, at like the co- there's COVID safe, uh, Rocky productions that are kind of happening right now. And so I've gone and seen it in those capacities.
0: I don't, I mean, I, I know there are films I've seen period that many times, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I am struggling. Like that's a, a lot, a lot. So this is why I wasn't sure. Cause I just was like, oh, I haven't seen it before. So who knows, but I can guarantee you, I'm probably not going to be
1: the fan that you are. And I did enjoy it very much though. So. And that is okay. Rocky is, there's not one unanimous experience with Rocky, uh, Everyone is welcome here in in the rock. That's kind of part of the appeal of the original stage musical, and the appeal in particular of how Rocky has been appropriated uh, through the midnight screenings and the shadow casts. And And
0: do you know that was actually the hardest part about seeing it first for the first time? Yeah, uh, with an audience because they knew all of the call and response moments. They you know had an idea of what to do, and it was very very clear. That I was probably the only person in that audience and it was not a very big audience either yeah um, but I was the only person in the audience that hadn't seen it before it, or if there was one other it was like some it was like one of the cast members grandparents and even then they'd probably seen it so it it does create for a very not intentionally but but a little bit of an alienating effect because it is as it, it truly is a cult classic in a way that I think we can't really apply that label as much to to any other film that doesn't have this, like you say, the shadow casting um, and and all of that. Like this is just a very, very
1: unique experience. And that leads me into our first subversion and transgression of the episode. I will be introducing a theory today, I guess uh, because I have won your degree earlier in the episode, that means now I am in charge of presenting the academic uh, scholarship, and we're going to be talking particularly about that feeling and why, particularly for newcomers into Rocky, there is that kind of weird alienation that is intrinsically built into the experience. Because as scholar, did you? How am I doing, by the way? I'm introducing scholarship. Is oh, it good. You're
0: doing good? fantastic. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. It's it's like <laughs> you did earn that page <laughs> and went through the misery, pain, and trauma. Uh, you know, in the few minutes that it took for you to to consume my... It's good to know that trauma is
1: transferable. Yes,
0: these are the lessons we are wanting to share.
1: So as John Linsky said in his essay, Queer Cult Performance, Recreating Rocky Horror in the 21st Century, he talks exclusively about kind of this concept of transgression. uh, And he defines transgression as a concept involving going against an established code of conduct or to go beyond the bounds of an aesthetic, ethical, or established form of behavior. He defines this as like, obviously, this is entirely what Rocky is about. The entire literal, the narrative is all about transgression, and these characters of Brad and Janet, who are kind of your everyman characters, being forced to undergo this massive change But Chris Jenkins, who he's uh, taking part of his theory about transgression and weaving it in here, says that transgression is a conduct which breaks rules or exceeds boundaries. However, the transgression behavior does not deny those boundaries, but rather exceeds them and thus completes them. Transgression is not disorder, but instead reminds us of the necessity of order. And so, this is why in cult films, like these kinds of liminal experiences that you have where you are temporarily away from order, it's not a lack of order, it's not completely chaos, it's a new order. And the, Linsky argues that this engagement of Rocky, in particular by queer audiences, is similar to Carnival and consists of human relations. And it's the experience of watching a film in a safe, non judgmental space with other queer people allows for the suspension of order imposed at other times. This participatory screening acts as a space for the other, where one who may be subject to discrimination and marginalization by a heteronormative society are free to express a certain queer identity and disengage the marginalization through these transgression acts.
0: Okay, so let's let's break that down. Let's break
1: it down. Yeah, let's discuss that. Yeah, what did you immediate reactions to Lenski?
0: There are a couple of things uh, that I think are, are emerging in this that are, are really important to keep in mind. And they're all things we've talked about to varying degrees in a lot of our discussions of things, that particularly anything that falls into camp. And that is that there is something about the space uh, in this moment, this liminal moment of engaging with the, either the film um, or a... Is it shadow cast or shadow play?
1: It's a, it called it? shadow cast. And the shadow cast, okay. for anyone who is a rocky version out there. Uh, the shadow cast is the experience of when you have a separate group of performers who are performing in front of the film, the 1975 film version of Rocky Horror, and they're recreating it up there, usually with their own inventive tw- staging and twists and gags that they throw in in conjunction with the film. Perfect.
0: So whether you're seeing the play, the Shadowcast, or the film, uh, it is a experience that is bounded, right? It's bounded in time, it's bounded in place. But part of, of what's being argued here is that it, it also manages to to transcend that because because anything that is transversive or transgressive is going to be pushing beyond is what I'm hearing, right? It's, it's not saying there are no rules. It is utter chaos. It is saying here are the rules. We laugh at the rules as we go beyond the rules. And I think you can see all of that in any of the, in either the, the experiential moments of the film, or in the text itself. So so that makes perfect sense to me. And I think that it aligns completely with, with how the film sets it up. Because like you said, we have the, the Everyman characters, and and they are pushed beyond, right? but But the boundaries are still presented, they're just,
1: we go past them. And I think in particular, because who it has been predominantly appropriated by these screenings and spaces, it is pushing beyond that established order to temporarily create a better order that is more accepting of, in particular, those types of people whose society has not been as accepting of. So it's a new order for a specific good. But it also, we, like the film itself, acknowledges that it, that order is temporary. And it's in that moment. it's. Like uh, like Frank at the end of the Rocky Horror Picture Show it has to be ended. It has to be. It has to go away. And so there is something really ephemeral and liminal about this space, which is why Lenski makes that argument that that screening is a space for the other, which is not something we usually talk about as the other being representative of an event but it's usually more of others as groups of people or in uh, other marginalized groups, but it's rare that that term is applied to an event.
0: I think it is a very compelling and, and interesting argument. I, I would push back a little on on the idea that it's, and I, I know this isn't quite what you're saying, but you talked about it being this like new thing, but in, in many ways, this is a very familiar, like several hundred years familiar uh, framework because it is, it's it's very akin to Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare. This it would not be hard at all, right? And your nodding indicates that clearly I'm not alone in this, clearly you are not alone in thinking this. That that this is, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream just even more blatantly queer. <laughs> and and instead of fantasy, science fiction.
1: Yeah, the both director Jim Sharman, who directed the seventy five film and helped with the original musical, as well as Writer and actor uh, Richard O'Brien have both talked about how it's essentially it's a fairy tale. That is what this is. It is a dark fairy tale. It's Hansel and Gretel uh, with sex and rock and roll, as it were. And that's a direct quote from uh, Jim Sharman from a 2010 interview with Media Mike. So yeah, I think that twisted fairy tale labeled like Midsummer Night's Dream is a perfect way to think about this.
0: And you could even argue that for various reasons, Midsummer Night's Dream manages to be a little bit more transgressive in, in one respect than Rocky Horror, because at the end Brad and Janet are back together. We, they may not stay together, but they're they're back together, whereas in Midsummer Night's Dream the the world that the, the fairy tale world that they experience has left a permanent mark Whereas you're absolutely correct that in, in Rocky Horror, we are left with the like, but don't worry, dear, gentle, heteronormative folks, uh, because at the end of the day, we can return back to that. And it's been this, this dreamlike condition. So I would argue in that one respect, we might even have some, some earlier, more, more transgressive texts, but they're not transgressive, queer transgressive, right? We also have just a an incredible amount of of scholarship that is out there on Rocky Horror. Yeah. In an effort to reclaim my PhD, I just <laughs> want to show uh, the the mere spectrum of, of things that emerged. So Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock, he has an edited collection that came out in 2008 called "Reading Rocky Horror: The Rocky Horror Picture Show in Popular Culture," and this was the first book length project to, to delve into Rocky. So one of the articles is about looking at the ways that Rocky horror incorporates, appropriates and cannibalizes elements of the science fiction tradition, which of course uh, is very neatly set up in the initial song, as well as in some of the, some of many of the scenes throughout the film. The author of this particular article argues that what Rocky horror reveals is that we are what we fear most. Another article is looking particularly at the musical, how it has been influenced by glam rock. We have another one which is looking specifically at how the film borrows and self-consciously departs from the conventions of the standard Hollywood musical. Then we have another article looking at viewership practices, how spectorial identification works in terms of the fetishization of interruption rather than suturing meaning and how Rocky Horror fans break the diegetic flow and therefore foreground both its rigidity and failure of dialogue. There's another one that's looking at psychoanalytical theories of viewership and the idea of misrecognition or recognition. Another one is looking at the ways in which the film's eroticism generates audience response. And this author is trying to answer the question, like, why Rocky Horror? What is it about this film? And his answer is, is that it's the sincerity of its lust, which I think is an intriguing argument. Then there are articles talking about um, the competing progressive and conservative messaging in the film. This is just one book, one of so many. Yes. And so if you can dream it. (laughs)
1: It can be, I think, a framework for reading this film. Yeah. Rocky Horror is truly just a unique cultural artifact. And so I think we could absolutely try to, like, talk to death the, like, nitty gritties of all of that. But I think it's also just interesting to talk about the cultural effect of it and then our, like, kind of unique experiences with it trying to, because that's all of what Rocky is. As we introduced in there, there's always going to be some level of alienation because the call outs and the experience of it and who you see it with is all totally dependent on the group and that collective psyche of the group, which is, can be totally different. One Rocky horror showing uh, with one crowd, you may know all the call outs. One Rocky horror showing, maybe doing it on a totally different call outs things. And so I think that that is what is so much fun about Rocky.
0: One of the things that I, I stressed when teaching film studies in more generally is that we need to be careful about articulating the difference between effect and affect. So we can't say that a particular camera angle or shot type or whatever it might be will for sure engender a specific effect on audiences because that, that just implies and assumes a whole lot. So instead we can talk about the affect with an A. And so we can say, this is the intended affect, whether or not you experience it is a slightly different uh, issue altogether. And I think what you said is so smart because what you're, what you're saying is that Rocky Horror allows us to realize such an incredible truth about any text. And that is that the text itself may be stationary, Um, It may be unchanging, but our experiences with the text imbue it with life perpetually. Mm -hmm. And when we view it, how we view it, with whom we view it, is going to change the text every single time in our lives.
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the like really magical things about Rocky that ironically, I don't think I ever, I got when I first was introduced to Rocky because I experienced Rocky like many people who were children of the 2000s, uh, I am, I've heard from many other people in my particular age group that they also experienced it in the Rocky Horror Glee show that came out in 2010, season two, episode five of Glee, which was their the, if you've never seen Glee, which I can I don't recommend. Now it's a, it's not one of Ryan Murphy's even better works. Uh, <laughs> there, go watch season three of American Horror Story if you want to watch Ryan. If you want to watch Ryan Murphy, but this episode single handedly just brought. I loved the music. I think I was just so compelled, even even by this watered down version, by that rock and roll aesthetic that. Richard O'Brien's music forces into it. And I think that's one of the more interesting things about it is it is a rock musical, like two decades before rock musicals were the commonplace. Uh, I mean, because in the the 90s saw this huge resurgence and birth of the like rock and roll uh, style musical. But in the 70s, you kind of only had hair, which Jim Sharman, who is the director of Rocky, had worked on uh, before. And then this, which is, yeah, it is very fascinating.
0: And, you know, I don't think all the songs, not all the songs do it for me to the same degree as other songs, um, in part because some of the songs require ranges that like no human can, can properly achieve, which I think is part of the point. So I'm thinking of the, Janet's song about touch me, um, which is like shrilly, right? And every, I think it's meant to be shrilly because it's not, it's not a very erotic song, but it's in this very quote erotic moment. So not all the music is music that I'm going to just listen to, um, by itself, but as a soundtrack and certainly as this narrative soundtrack, um, yeah, you really can't beat the, the catchiness of it. And also just the ways that it manages to put all the things it needs to put in there, right? We have all the songs that we need to have to go back to, to that one idea of, of the traditional conventional musical, but it's all being subverted, right, as as one mm-hmm. would expect.
1: Yeah. It started as a, in 73, was a musical first. And the musical is basically the same plot and everything as the movie, except in this Richard O'Brien and Jim Sharman have talked a lot about how the whole point of the stage musical was that it was film tropes parodied on the stage, and that is why it was funny. And then they talked about how it was basically like uh, so you've taken that, which is a parody of in itself, and then you basically don't change anything, and then you've put it up on film. And they were. Originally before it came out, they were like, is it, is it just too much? Are we, is it just nothing? Have we created nothing if we're just doing film tropes in film, in a musical that is filmed? And I don't think that's the case because I think that's actually perhaps the film aesthetic on top of these other film tropes and in this theatrical setting is part of what makes it really interesting and what works so well about the translation.
0: Yes. And we've, we've talked about issues of translation in our, particularly in our episode of Little Shop of Horrors as well. And the ways that, that, the, that film, the, the 86 film managed to, to success, to succeed, um, in making some important adaptations, but also to, to make some decisions that I think were, were ultimately perhaps not the best, most, um, transgressive options. So it is interesting to hear that for Rocky Horror, um, you know, they're, they're rather faithfully translating it onto the screen because that's, that's not often done, uh, for the reasons they said, right. That these are different media. And so it is, it was a gamble, right. It's an incredible gamble to say, we're going to leave it the same and hope that, or largely the same, and we're going to hope that it still manages to be as successful. So there's yeah. something inherent to, to the innards of, of Rocky horror independent of its manifestation, clearly as we have the still the play, the shadow casting and the film um, that transcends its its form. And that's very fitting for a Frankenstein-esque trans film uh, to be transcending its form in every single possible way. And it's really
1: interesting that that trans element uh, that is intrinsic and cannot be taken away from the film, uh, obviously, I don't think anyone's really trying to no. separate that uh, from the film, uh, is actually Richard O'Brien talked about, so Richard is, O'Brien identifies as third gender, which is, uh, neither man nor woman, but it just categorizes themselves as something outside of that. Richard O'Brien talked about how that element of transvestitism wasn't intended to be a major theme in the original adaptation. Uh, he's talked about how maybe it was just subconscious feeling about the subject coming through. He talked about that in a 1979 interview. So looking back on it, yeah, it was never intended to be as predominant, but this is one of those cases where I don't know if I'm not 100% sure if I agree with the creator and their judgment on this.
0: Yeah. I, f- I find, you know, I find it rather hard to believe that it came as a surprise to him, how how much people read it into the film because it seems it seems pretty explicit to me right if we take riff-raff and magenta as our really awkward brother sister lover unit but if we have if we have um riff-raff as our our male uh, alien and magenta as our female alien then we have a third gender third sex character in frankenfurter so i don't know how much more explicit then that you could get also
1: i don't i the whole frank's entire song about how wanting to be like Faye ray and wear that gorgeous dress and yeah look like and have that body type and don't dream it be it Yes. in terms of embracing your the yes. fluidity of sexuality and gender so I, this is one of those it's it is interesting to hear it's it feels weirdly enough, similar to like Nightmare 2 in terms of how the creators of that some talk about it, how right. they're like, oh, I didn't really know. I didn't expect <laughs> the gays to interpret it in this manner. Right. <laughs> and But this way, I uh, and so it's, it, it is it's interesting, but I, I really think that that's one of the most, that's one of the elements of the film that works so well yes. and is why in particular uh, que- queer people have been able to identify so well into the, into this film, around this film, and experience in them, yeah.
0: And there, the, the one article in the, the edited collection by Weinstock that that talks about the sincerity of its lust, um, I think you could even shorten it down to just sincerity, that that there's a sincerity in this film where, I'm sure you have, because I have, right, seen films where it is, it is clear that the film if not the actors are uncomfortable with the portrayals that they are giving, right? Like like there are a number of films, particularly films that have straight actors that are playing gay actors that are kissing and you were like, I have seen more erotic things happening between like a grandmother's kiss with her grandchild, <laughs> right? Like where it's like what they're like physically pulling away even as they're supposed to be passionately embracing them. Like this is this is clearly not of interest to this person. Uh, but but in this film, everyone does such a good job of, of just sincerely embodying their character. Um, there's no judgment in terms of the, how the film is directed or shot And there's no judgment in terms of how the acting or the actors are like you legitimately feel like in between scenes, they probably were just having mass orgies. Like you just (laughs) you feel that in your heart because they're so willing to be ambivalent on the screen. And I didn't feel any character or actor rather um, gave an inauthentic performance or an insincere performance. And that's. That's incredible. And I think that also accounts for why this film is so beloved because it doesn't feel like it's mocking, um, nor does it feel like, you know, it's hard to reappropriate Freddy too, because you're having to do it, despite, you know, the, the very like, no, we didn't mean that. Please don't do it. But if you want to, you can, there's none of that here. This is just like, Hey, want to have some fun because we're having some fun. And that's wildly, uh, just, uh, refreshing. So tell me when was the first time, so you watched it in tw- the Glee, right? But like when was the first time, what What was the situation
1: behind the first time you watched the 75 film? So the first time around the, I, that I saw the 75 film version was actually in also less than ideal uh, original circumstances. <laughs> I saw it with my mother oh, that's at awkward. our local theater in our small conservative town in texas and i'm a
0: little surprised that it was put
1: on i i was surprised Um, it was put on too it this was a different kind of viewing of rocky it was more (laughs) felt like people were making fun of it than Mm -hmm. people were like there to like enjoy the film because you were like hearing people yell like interesting slurs and i was like, hmm, it's interesting. I don't see a single queer person here, but I'm hearing a whole lot of like Good. just slurs being hurled Spikes. at the screen and people laughing at it. And I so the, I, again, less than ideal circumstances yeah. for my first two exposures, but in despite of it I still I still was able to find it those I still liked a lot of the Spirit of the participate, participatory nature of it, I just didn't particularly enjoy how the people there were participating. It wasn't until I saw a production—I um, I think I saw—I saw it in Austin at the longest-running Rocky uh, performance in, here in Texas. There, that I really got into the spirit of what, uh, uh, liking the participation that was occurring. Did you see that production with friends? No, nope, I saw it with my aunt. Um, <laughs> And then it wasn't until I got to college that I saw a Rocky with people who were actually my age. <laughs> wow.
0: Um, was your aunt? My aunt was a big Rocky like, was it a... fan. Okay. Okay. She, so okay. So I'm just she, trying to like, I'm trying to picture on the spectrum of, par- of family. So right? she mm-hmm. went
1: because she loves Rocky. So that was why I was like, that, that was a better circumstance to go with because that was a, also really nice because she brought me into the culture. I was like oh, yes, I, you know the lines, and so I am able to then, like, yell them at least a second behind you, like, or with you in support, which was really a nice way to ease in, and I know not an experience that everybody has with the call-outs and the experience of going, because I know a lot of people who just are, like, they'll, there at every Rocky Horror screening I've been to, there's always people who leave about halfway through because they don't understand, they don't, it's clear they don't like what's going on, or I've also, this probably doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. Helped produce Rocky and have run the event myself, people will come up and just be like, "I don't." People are just yelling at the thing. I can't hear the movie, and you're like, "Well, I'm." That's just not what this is. I'm sorry. I don't know what you thought you agreed to see, but that is not what this experience is.
0: And there are other films that I, I honestly won't see in theater for the same reason. Uh, like Princess Bride is, is another one that gets a lot of. You know, it doesn't have the same call call and response as Rocky Horror, but, you know, like diehard fans are still going to nevertheless um, say most of the lines aloud. Or we did go and see Back to the Future, but we made sure to see it uh, at a weird time of day. And even then, there were people that, you know, were just like saying the lines, line for line, but it doesn't have like, that same performative nature, right? Because that's the difference, I think, is that... It's not just audience engagement, uh, it's, it's performance. And, and it is this production, this film requires us, and this, this comes up in the, in the Weinstock edited collection, requires us to think differently about spectatorship and to think that maybe that is a form of art in its own right, in a way that almost no other film is going to do right.
1: I'm trying, the, the pause was to try to think yeah. of another film that does it quite in yeah. the same way. And I think that the fact that I'm not really, I can't really come up with another film similar, I, I, I guess The Room, perhaps, uh, the Tommy Wiseau film has been, right. ha, and now has a, but that's another, it's just cult, it's that culty, those cult film status.
0: It is, it is. And and there are films that, that asks us to question what an audience is, and I'm thinking, of a very different type of film, but like the Borat films, for example, <laughs> right? Where, because, because it is this performative, but again, it's about that performative aspect of the audience. Um, and yeah, yeah, of the audience. And so maybe that's similar, but it, it's still not, because there's still not that call and response. There's still not that active participation. Um, but it's just another film that, that queers, if you will, um, the audience role in, in the production. I think the best part about seeing this film, as opposed to being a, seeing any stage production that I can think of, is is getting to see this particular cast. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, they, it's a fantastic cast yes, here. It is, and and it's interesting to see people that have gone on to be. And I'm thinking particularly of Tim Curry and Susan Sarandon that have gone on to, to be very defined in, in who they are in these as actors, um, by some other really, really well-known roles and to see just the, the wild abandon that they are willing to exhibit in this film. Because I kind of think, you know, I think of Susan Sarandon and I don't necessarily think of this, like, super role or of the super, um, sort of like, inhibition free, uh, you know, person, but clearly she was enough, right. To be willing to be able to be in this film,
1: this, and then the hunger Years later.
0: Yeah. So, but I just kind of think of her by some of her, her old, uh, older roles, right. The roles that she plays when she's older, uh, and just, yeah, it's hard. And then, you know, then there's Tim Curry and it's like, it's really hard to find someone attractive. <laughs> that you're like Pennywise <laughs> right? uh-huh. um, or I think of uh, one of his other like defining roles for me, which it was much, much later um, was he played Dale the whale in the TV show Monk and Dale the whale weighed like several, like five or 600 pounds. So he was in this heavy prosthetic the whole time um, and he was like really, really bad guy. And so it's really, really hard to be like, you look really nice Pennywise. <laughs> uh, so that, that is that is also, which I think, again, just adds this really lovely layer that, you know, there's Rocky horror that you can experience in the early years that the film came out. And then there's Rocky horror that you can only experience seeing the ways in which other portrayals and, and versions of not just Rocky horror, but the other things the actors have been in, right? It layers on and it makes for a different viewing experience.
1: Yeah. And I would say a lot of, like... You, despite the other work that they go on to do, they are in many ways still defined and remembered as these characters yes. because this film has taken on, as we've suggested, just this otherworldly aspect outside of the text of the film itself. And so, these characters, this experience that is recreated, you're recreating these 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 performances from these actors and passing them on from generation to generation. So, it is interesting that as like for like Tim Curry, like. I, Everybody knows him from something else, right? Uh, but yet, in many ways, he will and always be kind of remembered as this as Frank. That's a that yes. is, he, any, any interview you go with Tim Curry. Uh, he gets that question asked about Rocky Horror, and that is the same way with just about any of the yeah. creators of it. In fact, Jim Sharman is not as big of a fan of that question, who's the director, because he, <laughs> he is actually, of all of the others, he's like, the he's a serious director. He's oh, like an established and but and yet everyone just wants to talk to him about Rocky Horror anyway, which I get just speaks to that cultural power of it. And even it because even in 2021, when we have so many other options for, uh, camp, cult films, queer films, uh, performance opportunities, activities, things to do. We still keep returning to Rocky Horror. We still come back to this, this film, this experience.
0: Yeah. And I've always wondered, you know, because I don't think this is a situation I will ever find myself in, but if, if I had this big hit, this life-changing hit, would I be upset uh, if I, you know, then went on to do other stuff, and it never achieved the success of, of that first thing, would I also be, you know, kind of frustrated or annoyed? Or would I lean into it? Like, I I wonder that because we have lots of examples. You know, I'm like, JK Rowling is another good example that she's like, but I do other stuff now. And they're like, shh, Harry Potter. shh, uh, And, you know, and there's lots of people, I think Stephen King has managed to be one of the few people that although we're like, oh, here are his early works and these may be some of our favorite works, he's producing stuff that people are enjoying just as much. But but those are the exceptions to the rule, right? And so there's something really interesting, and I, I just can't help but think about like, what must it be like to just know that you were part of a text that has literally changed the landscape of not just one genre or not just one aspect but as many things as possible. Like, what must that be like? What an incredible, incredibly- Jim, like Jim
1: Sharman talked about it in an interview as something he had to get over <laughs> uh, many years ago in order to keep going yeah. on, because it's just like, you could, I feel like, really get bogged down by the weight of it. Just like, uh, nothing you do will ever be as big, which is not the only measure of success, but it is certainly a measure of success that is talked about a lot. Uh, and he so he just talked about it. he had to get over it to keep moving on and just all and to appreciate that this was coming out of not a dislove of all of the other stuff, but of so much love for this yes. one other thing. And
0: you say big, and I think that's that's key, because it's not just that it's a, now a financial success. It's not just that it's a pop culture success or that it's a transmedial success. It's, it's that it, or that it's a queer success It's that it's all of these. Right. And so there are other texts that you can be like, well, this made a lot of money, but the critical reception wasn't very good, but like with Rocky Horror, you can't say any of that. And I think that's lovely because this is a Frankenstein text. And so, and so the, 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 at the core, if we go back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein at the core of that is, have I made a mistake? In creating something that now has autonomy and agency beyond me, the con- the the creator, and and we see that with Frankenfurter and and Rocky, uh, and we see that with uh just the way that you know Frankenfurter is like you know you're mine, and Rocky's like am I? Yeah. Um, and and just even the titling, right? Calling it the Rocky Horror Picture Show as opposed to the you know, if we if we're going back to the Frankenstein narrative, right, Frankenstein is the doctor, that's it's named after the doctor, this is named after the creature. So there's ways in which it's so amazing, like, what are the odds that you couldn't have made this happen intentionally, that the text becomes itself the creature that we are taught to both fear and love. And
1: that creature is truly more powerful than just about anything else. It's the only thing perhaps more powerful than Disney right now because of the world we live in. Uh, Fox was able, Fox, which made Rocky Horror, which also insane that a major studio produced. It really is. That was my thought the entire
0: time that I was watching it. It was like, as I just, it's so, I feel like this film would struggle to get me made today. And clearly it did because you're talking about how the 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 made for TV version took things out, right? They censored themselves, which again is, is sort of the opposite of camp.
1: Right. They had to. And it and yes. it still yes. took years to be developed because it had to go through so many levels of will it work? Can we do it? Will this be on because right. Fox was meant to do it on their television right. network, it had to be okay right. for television right. now, which is a new thing right. on top and of the And so it, we have that, through. right?
0: We have like we can barely do it today. Uh, and the fact that it is coming out from a major distributor is is so amazing. And I honestly don't, I just don't know how that's possible. But yay.
1: And so it was pr- produced by Fox and then Fox got bought by Disney. And so now Rocky Horror is technically under the domain of Disney. And Disney, there was this big scare when that happened because Disney has notoriously pulled uh, distribution rights for its films to put its films behind the vault in the disney vault and they immediately started doing this with fox films aliens put pulled from screenings you can't do any of like anything of a fox property they've pulled it except for rocky horror they did not touch it rocky Horror. i, I mean i can't believe we hadn't mentioned this at all has still not been left theater circulation since it premiered in 75. It's the longest running film, continually running film wow. of all time. That's amazing. And there was a, but there was the real possibility. People were afraid that when Disney bought it, they would shut down these productions of Rocky because it, it doesn't make sense from a corporate perspective to let these happen, these, because it really only benefits the people and who see Rocky, right, right. it doesn't benefit them in any way who technically now own it. But I think even Disney realized that they may own Rocky, but they don't own Rocky. That still belongs to the fans and the uh, the project itself, which, as you said, from the Frankenstein narrative, has taken on its a life onto itself and can't really be controlled or owned.
0: And I would like to stress again just how incredible it is that they haven't haven't taken it away because they are in the process with their new i can't remember if he's their cio or ceo or CEO, one of the ceos um probably ceo who has been making all of these changes to how disneyland and disney world work in terms of um charging more and charging more for things that no one asked for, right? But they're like, but we can make more money on this and we think we can get the people to keep paying. So they they're such a, a mercenary system when it comes to everything that it just really is um amazing. And I don't know if it's because they did the math and they figured out you know the number of of instances in which they just constantly be fighting battles or if they I, I find it hard to believe that any shadowy corporation was feeling generous because I don't think that's how shadowy corporations work, <laughs> but it is this again, really sort of interesting level. The One other thing I do want to say about the film, because in our spooky scraps, we'll, we'll look at, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the theatrical thing is that I, having seen the play first and seeing it in a smaller theater um, with a smaller budget. I really appreciated the, the mise-en-scene, particularly the set designs and, and I, I almost feel like you can't fully, you can't fully understand the, the like majesty that is this film if you can't see it where we can have an entire room that's pink, except for the rainbow colored tank or the some of the cuts that we absolutely need that you can kind of mimic on stage, but but it's harder. Like for example, when Frankenfurter is is visiting Janet and then, and then Brad um, in the slightly rapey, but also very funny. And then I feel awkward saying that uh, scenes, but like we need it to be able to cut like that. And, and so there are things that I think make the film in some ways a superior version of, of what, of the excess than you can have on on a stage and i don't know if you disagree because you've seen more stage productions than i have
1: but i think that is true and i think that the the creators would even agree with you too it was they talked about how the it was they were hoping to achieve more of a surrealist extravagant feel for the film whereas the stage version is a more intimate rock and roll punk in your face aesthetic and so they're like they're just two completely different things and I don't know if I, I don't know which one I prefer. I think they're just in t- two entirely different creatures, two entirely different Frankenstein creatures, if you will. And so I think it just depends on whatever I'm in the mood for. I think know. I need to see,
0: I would like to see the play. I, I don't know if I'm particularly interested in the shadow casting, um, for whatever that's worth. Uh, but I, I think I would like to see the play again, now that I know that I won't be, now that I won't have like that trauma of, being the newbie that's like, what? We actually yeah. have th- lines that we're supposed to deliver. Uh, and now that I've seen the film, I I, I want to see the play again. Because I think I think I would be able to make a better assessment. But but I just, the film is so, it's like velvet, right? And I don't always yeah. like the touch of velvet as like a human. I just, it's not my favorite feel. But at the same time, there's sometimes that you're like, ooh, this feels nice. And you're like, oh, does it? Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. And that's yeah. that's what the film offers you. Uh, in a way that I, I just don't know if, if anything else can compare. If you're listening to this episode, when it releases, this was something that we sort of added onto to our, our normal uh, rotation of films because... We were that excited to just do some more spooky season fun.
1: And, and also maybe give you a podcast to listen to about Rocky horror while you either go to see it this weekend or after you see it this Halloween weekend.
0: Yes. Because apparently which, which weekend did you say it is that everyone sees?
1: It's this weekend. So today, uh, when this episode gets released is that will be the 29th, the, so the weekend before Halloween is the most popular weekend for Rocky performances.
0: Excellent. But fortunately, spooky season is not ending with our discussion of
1: Rocky Horror. No, 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 no. We will be doing our annual tradition where we watch a film from the Halloween franchise, and we have our age old conversation where I dislike it and Dr. Troyer loves it. Yeah, basically, (laughs) it's
0: where I'm sad because I'm like, but don't you like
1: this a little?
0: And then then Anthony's like, actually, my love for it grows less every time. And I'm like, but how is that? So you need to listen to that episode because it is because we're gonna be Yeah,
1: it's a classic Halloween kills 2021. We're gonna talk about the new one that'll come out on Halloween. So. Get excited for that! And if people want to get a hold of us,
0: how would they do so?
1: They could follow us on our social medias, which are in the description of this podcast. Wherever you get your podcast from, why don't you go ahead and give us a rating there? Anything you can leave us, just leave us a five star rating where you get your podcast. That That's be very presumptuous. Helpful. You're like, leave us um, a five star,
0: not not leave us a rating. Leave us a five star rating is what Anthony's telling you to do.
1: In an era of only dualistic binary reactions to things. I want you to have a good positive five-star reaction to this podcast rather than the alternative in this scenario. So go give us a rating there. Our email is also in here if you wanna get in touch and email us suggestions for what we should do on future episodes.
0: And we wanna thank you for listening to our nightmares.
1: And have a spooktacular day.